Something very old and something cutting-edge new this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The sextant. It has been helping sailors find their way across treacherous seas for centuries. A sextant that those ancient mariners would recognize has just gone to the International Space Station. And in the same cargo hold was a laboratory that will enable us to investigate as never before the strange properties of atoms when they are as cold as they can get. Just some of the science going on a few hundred kilometers over your head. All our other regulars have the week off. Oh, not Bruce Betts. He'll be by to tell us about a truly magnificent night sky. And we'll learn the name of his former band... There's still a lot waiting for you at planetary.org, including a wonderful collection of asteroids, metal asteroids, sitting on the surface of Mars. They're in a blog post from guest writer Linda Martell. Greg Holt works at the Johnson Space Center outside Houston, Texas, where he is the Orion Multipurpose Crew Navigation Lead. Want to know where you are in space and how to get to that moving speck of light ahead of you? Then Greg's your guy. He's also, though, the principal investigator for a project that has just put a sextant on the ISS. Simply put, this ancient instrument allows a trained operator to very precisely determine the angle between one object, let's say the horizon, and another, maybe the moon, sun, a planet, or a distant star. Knowing that angle can be the key to knowing where you are, whether you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or on a spaceship that is halfway to Mars. Greg Holt, great to talk to you down there at the uh, Johnson Space Center. Thank you for joining us on Planetary Radio. Thank you, Matt. Great to be with you today. I am uh, especially pleased today to be talking to someone who, uh, at least from what I have read, knows as much as anybody on this planet about how to get from here to someplace else uh, without getting lost. I mean, is that a fair description? That's not too bad of a description, actually. I like to joke around with my team here uh, in Houston that uh, one of our big jobs is to answer the, uh, the the question when the flight director asks, dude, where's my spaceship? Uh, we're, we're on call. <laughs> and this is a challenge that we face since the beginning of the space age, but really for far longer than that, because we want to talk about this marvelous device, this instrument that you have sent up, you and NASA have sent up on the most recent uh, resupply mission to the International Space Station. Tell us about uh, what you've got in mind sending a sextant to uh, the ISS. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, really the ultimate application of standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, Obviously, folks have been using sextants, these mechanical optical devices, to navigate uh, on the high seas since the 17th, 18th century. So certainly nothing new on the technology, uh, but the application of it to spaceflight is where things really got get interesting. Uh, and especially because as we're traveling further and further away from Earth, traditional land-based uh, aids such as GPS like we have here uh, on Earth become less and less applicable. And we really have to go back to uh, navigating by the stars and doing things a little bit more the old-fashioned way uh, the further we get out. So this concept of sending up a fairly simple device, but one that's uh, very time-tested for as a navigation aid, testing it as an emergency device when all the chips are down, when potentially 
computers and communications are, are lost, uh, having that uh, nice solid piece of metal in your hand that you can use to uh, affect your own rescue is really appealing to the crew. Did you work with uh, the astronauts who uh, will be uh, attempting to navigate and find their position with this uh, with this sextant? We did, in fact. We uh, had the great opportunity to actually train this crew that uh, is going to do the experiment for us on the International Space Station here coming up soon. Alex Gerst and Arena Anon-Chancellor uh, were our two crew members, and they did a great job. We started off the session telling them that... Uh, Astronaut means star sailors, and they were going to get a get a chance to earn their stripes today as actual star sailors uh, in the training and if, when they do their experiment. And they were uh, they're very enthusiastic, and uh, I had a great training session with them, and are looking forward to uh, actually doing the operations with them out on the station. You ever see the movie Master and Commander, or read uh, the the terrific book series that that it was based on? I have done both, absolutely. You remember the scene in the movie where uh, the captain is showing the young midshipman how to uh, use the sextant? Absolutely, yes. That's a that's a great scene. It's it's very applicable of the the type of uh, measurements that we're having the crew take. Uh, we're actually using the the method of lunar distances for uh, for this experiment and also for for Orion's use. Uh, it's a method of taking measurements between. Uh, some distant fixed objects like the stars and some closer moving objects like the moon and the earth and using that to tease out your position of velocity uh, in that region between the earth uh, earth and the moon where we're going to be hanging out for a long time on these Orion deep space missions. It seems to me that these earthbound sailors of a couple hundred years ago, and of course sextants are still being used by the U.S. Navy, they had the advantage of that they, they only really had to work in two dimensions, where you have to teach people to work in three. Is is that a challenge? It is a little bit of a challenge, and we're doing our best, obviously, for this uh, particular application to try to make it as simple for the astronauts uh, as possible. We're having them learn to take the marks and then we're giving them uh, quite a few post-processing uh, aids. Obviously, back in the age of sale, they had to do all of the calculations by hand. Uh, we're obviously going to let them have the advantage of calculator, and a, or uh, even better, we're going to have a uh, some tablets on board that they can use to help them with some of the, the data reduction that uh, takes takes some of the time and also takes some of the learning. So it's going to take a little bit of the learning curve away, uh, having some of that uh, pre-calculated all for them. So all they have to do is just take the marks uh, and put it in. But it, the actual physical skill of taking an ac- accurate mark with a sextant is absolutely not unlike they had to learn back in the days of Master and Commander. And they obviously didn't have an app for that. But if you were to hand your sextant to uh, one of these mariners of a couple hundred years ago, w- would they pretty much know how to use it? Uh, absolutely. The basic design and operation has really not changed significantly since the 18th century there. And that's really a testament to the folks that designed that. They literally spent untold hours designing uh, all the uh, the features into it that they would need into a what's really a relatively compact and useful device for getting that type of measurement, those, uh, those angular measurements that you need to effectively perform navigation uh, at sea, obviously, for them. Uh, but we're extending it all the way out to space. And even in space, there's, there's some history for this. I found some video and some stills of uh, Gemini astronauts uh, and, and Apollo astronauts, right, uh, who use sextants. In fact, I, I'm the Apollo uh, command module. I saw astronauts using a sextant that was actually built into the capsule. That's quite true. They're, the concept of using a sextant is uh, in space is nothing new. 
the records are spotty, but uh, we do think that the some of the early Voskhod missions uh, out of the Soviet Union took a sextant along. We do know that uh, for sure, obviously, that the Gemini missions uh, were the first documented places where we had sextants used in space. Most famously, Buzz Aldrin on Gemini 12 took it up and did a very nice set of experiments there with a handheld sextant. And then for Apollo, they did, in fact, build in a, a vehicle integral sextant uh, for a source of navigation, uh, ended up being the, the backup source of navigation to get the crew home in the event that they lost communication with the ground. Uh, and Jim Lovell famously dem demonstrated that uh, during his Apollo 8 cruise to and from uh, the moon, uh, where he did a, uh, did a fabulous job of taking sites that were as accurate or more accurate than we could radio track from the ground had a little bit of a competition going there between the guys on the ground and how good he could sight from the uh, from the vehicle. <laughs> I assume that things may have improved a little bit since then, but uh, maybe we'll get into that in a moment. Are are you pretty confident that when humans finally uh, head out to Mars, they'll have a sextant along for the ride? You know, obviously they're going to have to make that call. Each uh, each crew and each uh, each program has to decide what they want to take along as far as their emergency rescue equipment. Uh, we're doing this experiment to really demonstrate that this is a viable option to them. And, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, just like when you're going to sea for an extended period of time, you have your GPS units with you, but uh, most good mariners will always have that uh, mechanical backup that uh, when everything else is going down, and they're in a low power situation. Uh, you always have that that last fallback that you can use to at least give yourself a fighting chance to uh, to get to get home or to make it to your destination. Yeah, we talk a lot on this show about robotic space missions and and the absolutely amazing, spectacular jobs of navigation they do, getting all the way across the solar system and hitting tiny keyholes in the sky. For human exploration of space, I mean, how have things changed uh, since the days of, of Gemini and uh, Jim Lovell, uh, showing that he might be able to do it better with a sextant than uh, could be done from the ground? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, certainly, those robotic missions are, are absolutely amazing in their ability to really thread the needle when it comes to doing effective navigation across incredible distances. Truth be told, we've, we've and the human spaceflight regime have are taking full advantage of that. The, the advances in the deep space network that have been made over the past 50, 60 years uh, have been incredible. We certainly uh, anticipate that Deep Space Network is going to play an integral role in tracking human transportation vehicles well into the future. And uh, having that asset there is going to be a huge, uh, huge benefit. But one advantage that we do have over robotic missions as human transportation missions is we do have a crew that if worse comes to worse, they can always affect their own rescue, uh, whereas the robotic mission has to uh, stand by and kind of wait for the ground to troubleshoot and come come to their aid. Yeah. Before I let you go, uh, I want to mention something that I only discovered as I was researching uh, to prepare for this conversation, and that is that your sextant isn't the only one, in a sense, on the ISS, because I read about what's known as the Station Explorer for X-ray Timing and Navigation, which is a uh, one of those wonderful NASA acronyms that comes out as sextant. Talk about state of the art or bleeding edge for uh, 
perhaps for one day for humans to find their way around the solar system. Are, are you familiar with this? Yes, absolutely. The folks, uh, some of the good folks over Goddard uh, Space Flight Center have been working on that for, for some time uh, and did fly that up there. And uh, boy, that's been a great tech demo mission, getting some really good data from that. I absolutely see that as a one of the big next steps in uh, autonomous navigation for uh, obviously not just for human spacecraft, but for any spacecraft, robotic included. Uh, the ability to give yourself almost a GPS-like system as you move out further into the solar system using these uh, these pulsars is incredibly exciting and, and, a, and a really would be a great leap forward. And I'm really excited to see all the great results they're getting. Uh, it's the great technological leap forward for for navigation, and uh, it's an interesting compliment to see that mission uh, against ours, which is purposefully trying to go the low tech route, if you will, to be the, the very deep emergency backup. And so, you know, kind of having those two complement each other is a, is a nice, interesting juxtaposition on the station right now. Yeah, it sure is. Good on them for uh, picking such a, a terrific acronym. Greg, it sounds like uh, the romance of all of this, uh, the charm of using a device that would be familiar to uh, uh, someone traveling the seas of Earth 200 years ago, it's not lost on you. No, absolutely not. I, I, I have to admit it's, 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 very, it's very nostalgic and very, very humbling, in fact, to, to realize that this same sort of activities were taking place uh, hundreds of years ago and that the, the basic skills of the navigator there uh, really translate so well to the modern space-fearing age. Uh, obviously, we take advantage of all of the advances in technology to give us very robust and, and capable uh, autonomous and automatic systems. But uh, much like the sailors at sea today still have that, uh, that mechanical backup to allow them uh, to affect their own rescue uh, in a pinch. Uh, we're wanting to give the crew that same capability today. Thank you, Greg. It has been absolutely fascinating talking to you about this project and how we're using uh, a classical romantic technology now to uh, find our place among the stars, as Seaman did hundreds of years ago here on Earth. It really has been a pleasure, and uh, best of luck with this project. Likewise. My pleasure as well, Matt. Greg Holt is the principal investigator for the sextant that uh, is now on the International Space Station. But he is also the Orion Multipurpose Crew Navigation Lead at NASA's Johnson Space Center, working with all the people who are preparing uh, the Orion spacecraft uh, to travel far beyond low Earth orbit one day, and hopefully one day very soon. The Cold Atom Lab, or CAL, has joined the forest of devices, machines, gadgets, and assemblies aboard the International Space Station. Putting it there has been the dream of project scientist Rob Thompson and his team for a long time. Rob himself has been working with atomic and laser physics, along with quantum electrodynamics and other areas of research for over 20 years. He has believed for many of those years that the microgravity environment what most of us know as zero-G, may be the key to understanding the terribly strange things atoms do when they are a hair's breadth above absolute zero. Now he and we may finally unlock those secrets. Rob Thompson, welcome to Planetary Radio. It's a pleasure to get you in here as our, our guest uh, at the Planetary Society. Awesome to be here. And not everybody gets to do this right after getting a personal tour from the science guy himself. 
And as you heard, he's he's a fan. He's a fan of Cold Adams, which I, I sounds like you are too. I am a big fan of Cold Adams. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about Cold Adam Lab, which uh, you must be very relieved to know has now taken its place in Iraq on the International Space Station. Yes, it was very exciting to watch it. Had a beautiful launch and had had a nice ride up to the station, and we got to interact with the astronauts as they were putting it into the rack, and it was incredible to see that come together. You you were on live with the astronauts as oh, they were. We uh, were watching on video, and, and team members were in contact with them, talking them through some of the procedures. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now I want to know where you at the launch. <laughs> I was at the launch as well. It was a great launch. I was, you know, nighttime launch from from Walla. Nice. Probably my favorite place to watch a launch. So. Haven't done one there. Of course, yeah. I've barely done one anywhere. All right. <laughs> We got to talk about what this is going to do, but as an intro to that, because my guess is, sophisticated as our audience may be, some of them probably have never heard of a Bose-Einstein condensate. Please give us the two or three or four minute primer to what we're talking about here. Well, as you get matter at very cold temperatures, you see something strange happen, and it's a quantum mechanical effect. It's not something you expect from classical physics. But if you get a gas of a certain type of particle called bosons, and, and most atoms are bosons, as you cool them down there, you start to see their quantum nature, their wavelength. Particles have both a wave and a particle nature, and you start to see that, that wave nature. If you get down to very cold temperatures, those wavelengths get larger and larger. Um, and if your density is high enough and you're cold enough, they start to overlap. And when that happens, something strange happens. The atoms, it's been described as kind of a quantum identity crisis. You know, a, a large fraction of them will fall into the lowest possible state and uh, start behaving as a large kind of macroscopic object. You know, they're not individual atoms anymore. I've heard them described almost like a, a single superatom. You know, one of the first people to, to uh, discover them described them that way as kind of a, a superatom. So it's still a quantum object. Most of us have heard a little bit about quantum mechanics, but uh, you know, we, what we might think about it is it's the science of really small things, you know, atoms and um, molecules and subatomic particles. The interesting thing is that at these low temperatures, quantum mechanics can become larger. These can become macroscopically sized objects. So quantum mechanics is the science not just of small things, but also of very cold things. So. Hmm. Bose and Einstein. Einstein we know. Yeah. Bose, they work together on this? Bose was a, was a uh, prominent Indian scientist, and he gave a lot of thought to the statistics of how lots of quantum particles will interact together, and he sent a paper off to Einstein, and Einstein thought about it for a while, and as, as he thought about it, he said, oh, this is, you know, one of the things that uh, occurred to Einstein was that if that was true, if Bose was, was right, that you would see this Bose-Einstein condensate. And it took him a little while to, to decide to reconcile himself that all this was real and the math was right, and um, but then he did finally help Bose get that published and get the attention that it deserved, and it's really one of the kind of cornerstones of modern statistical physics. But when that happened, they showed it was theoretically possible, yeah. but nobody had actually created one of these, right? Yes. At the time, I think Einstein didn't even really think you would ever be able to get to that, mm. those kind of cold temperatures, so it took quite a while. Before that, it had done experiments with superfluid helium, and people did you know, say that that's a related phenomenon. It's a little bit more complicated because... Also really weird also stuff. Also really yeah. weird stuff. 
And so it's related to superfluidity, it's related to superconductivity, but those are systems where the particles are interacting very strongly together, and those strong interactions kind of, to some extent, mask the pure statistical physics phenomena of Bose-Einstein condensation. How long have we actually been able to play with this stuff in the lab? Uh, 1995 Hmm. was the first one made by uh, Carl Wyman, uh, Eric Cornell, and colleagues at the University of Colorado. Um, We're actually very excited to have uh, Eric as one of our PIs, principal investigators, uh, scientists who work with the, the Cold Atom Lab. At the time, I was you know, just starting my career as a postdoc uh, with uh, Bill Phillips, who was one of the um, first people to discover the technique of what's called laser cooling, using, using mm. lasers to get atoms very cold. And that's one of the techniques that we start on, uh, is using the things that he had discovered. But the exciting thing at the time was every lab that was doing this sort of thing around the world, and there was probably 100 of them, you know, different universities spread out around the world, Everybody changed immediately and started doing Bose-Einstein condensation experiments. Mm. So it was one of those experiments that everybody drops whatever else they're doing and says, oh, that's really neat. Many labs around the world started to do these experiments. I came to JPL a couple of years after that. It was obvious even from the beginning that gravity played a pretty big role. It could uh, perturb these experiments fairly significantly and played a pretty big role, often kind of a deleterious role. Almost right from the 97, 1998, we started thinking about doing one of these experiments in space, which was crazy at the time. And many people told us we were crazy because uh, (laughs) it really took a very massive lab full of equipment, huge amounts of power. It took a team of graduate students and postdocs usually kind of tweaking up these experiments and keeping everything running and repairing them when they broke down. The idea of doing that in space was, was crazy. Yeah, a- astronauts are, they're really smart people, but there aren't a whole lot of them <laughs> that are advanced physicists. Yeah, yes, and their time is pretty precious as well. So, yeah. so we had to work on developing a system that would be, once the astronauts have installed it, would be totally hands-off. We control it from the ground, um, and the astronauts don't need to be bothered by it, but they still can help us out if we have a problem, if we, something does need to be replaced or uh, fixed, they can do that. They also uh, can upgrade the system, so we actually designed it to be a system that can be upgraded and, and have new new modules kind of go in to do new, new types of science. What were the biggest challenges in getting this from the what you said was a lab-sized experiment, yeah. experimental structure, down to something you could fit in a rack and run with the limited power available on yeah. the ISS? Yeah. The power issues, some of that was uh, new technology that had been sold kind of in the meantime to make uh, kind of miniaturize the little traps. We, we trap our atoms with magnets, and you can make these actually pretty small. The nice thing about them being small is they are actually also much more powerful traps and at the same time much, more, much lower power traps. Hmm. So we kind of solve a number of problems at the same time. So that problem we and others around the world had kind of sold prior to the launch, but it was a massive packaging, as you might imagine. There's, um, I think, something like a mile or so of cables, you know, wow. in this tiny little box and trying to figure out how to get them from one place to another. We certainly had, a, you know, our share of, of, of things that you know, needed to be invented. This, you know, one of the interesting things about this and one of the reasons this type of emission is important 
is because the technology for you know, very sensitive lasers and other types of techniques to uh, manipulate atoms, you know, very good vacuum systems. And you can find examples of people have flown this before, but not quite as, as complex a system as we've put together here. The space station makes all of this possible as well. You know, one of the big things in the space station doesn't seem to get enough credit for how incredibly good it is as a lab. This is a you know shirt sleeve environment, so we don't have to worry too much about major temperature fluctuations and things like that. Mm-hmm. The space station, you know, there certainly are some limitations on power, but it's pretty good compared to what we oh. used to, especially especially at JPL when we're really trying to save every watt when trying to send something to. Well, you're, Mars or something like you're that. You're saying there may be, oh, right, compared yeah. to like sending a rover to Mars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, now yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, I thought yeah. you were going to say you had less power available at JPL than you did on the <laughs> ISS. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, no. Compared to a, a typical JPL space mission, um, it's, it's pretty yeah. healthy. And pl- capability of taking out the heat as well, which is also important. Uh, but the, the other thing that's nice about Space station, especially if you're flying inside the space station like we are, um, is you get to wrap the whole thing up in foam before you send it up, and you have the astronauts there to unpack it. Nice. Rocket rides are, you know, (laughs) they take a toll. Yeah, they take a little toll. So, what's the status now on the ISS? It's only been there for, as we speak, about a month. It's about a month now, coming up on a month, and so we have done a a basic hardware checkout. We we have. Uh, we have some cold atoms. You know, we've done you know the first oh. steps of cooling atoms. Hardware is working extremely well so far. Not quite as cold as we're, you know, we're going to get them. The first couple of weeks really focused on hardware checkout types of activities. Then the next big step is to try to optimize this system to work in microgravity. A lot of the different steps that we take to cool atoms are going to behave somewhat differently in microgravity to the way that they behave on Earth. So you have to kind of tune and tweak your system a little bit to get its performance optimized. So we're taking a sort of methodical step-by-step path through those processes to optimize it. But the science is coming. What is it about microgravity that gives you such an advantage doing this kind of work? The big thing about microgravity is we can let one of these samples go and we can just, it'll just sit there, it'll float in our apparatus, yeah. and we can look at it for a fairly long time. Or if you want to actually hold it, we can hold it with extremely weak forces. We don't have to you know, fight against gravity to, to hold it. One of the reasons that's important is um, the last step of our cooling process. So we have a, a three-step cooling process. I mentioned the lasers. Uh, there's another step called evaporative cooling, where we pluck off the hottest atoms and let the rest of them cool down. <laughs> Uh, you actually, then, there was a Larry Niven, the science fiction writer, yes. Larry Niven's short story, where in a time of magic on Earth, where a guy, an old wizard, lives in a cave, and he's got sprites or something that he's created, <laughs> and they actually, they grab the hotter molecules and throw them out of the caves, and that's his air conditioning system. Ah, well, this is, yeah, he must have known a little bit about evaporative cooling, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, we have, the, the, you know, these atoms are kind of bouncing around on a little, they're held in a, in a magnetic trap. You know, we have uh, atoms that we can be prepared. Uh, atoms themselves act like little magnets. And we can use uh, radio frequency or microwave radiation to actually just pluck out the atoms that are in the highest magnetic field, which are also the hottest one that have kind of climbed up the furthest up the walls. Got it. And we can pull those ones out selectively and let the rest of them kind of cool down. But the very last step that we do is we do something called decompression cooling. And and there's a few different related techniques, but the, the simplest one to describe is taking that just 
you know, we're holding them in this magnetic trap. It's really like you can imagine you have a little cup, coffee cup, that's made up of magnetic fields, and the atoms are kind of sitting at the bottom of this thing. And we just expand it. We weaken the trap, and we let the cloud expand. And uh, as it does that, it gets cool. And it's the same uh, type of phenomena when you spray on an aerosol can. Yeah. Uh, and you, you Or like, it gets like cold. a refrigerator, yeah. the Venturi in a refrigerator. Yes, just... is that kind of expansion yeah. type, type of effect. Yes, uh, and uh, that works well, and people do that on the ground, but you can only go so far on the ground because you have to support the atoms against gravity. And so uh, we can go much further, and we hope much colder. You know, there's really not strict limits. We hope to get uh, temperatures, uh, you know, well below nanokelvin. Oh, I, I, sorry, a billionth of a Kelvin? Uh, a billionth, a billionth of, a of a degree above absolute above zero. Above absolute zero, yes. So, so very will, will that then be the coldest ever achieved, um, if that happens? It's a little bit colder that you have to get to. We are hoping that we get to make that claim. Um, <laughs> okay. But, uh, yes, uh, you know, uh, if we don't see it on the first try, we have, you know, some of our PIs have somewhat more advanced techniques to get us even colder and... Uh, yeah, ultimately, uh, if you want to get really cold, space is the place to be. So that's only one of the reasons to be in space, though. The other reason is simply to be able to look at these atoms for longer times. For some uh, types of experiments, essentially, this lets you look for very weak effects. You know, uh, you might get masked on Earth. Uh, it also lets you make uh, more precise measurements. In a sense, just Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. If you can look mm, at something mm-hmm. longer, you can measure its frequencies and energies better. This is sort of a... It's a platform. It's a workbench. It's not just one experiment. You're going to be supporting many experiments and many researchers. So, yeah, it's a multi-user facility. So uh, we have five teams of researchers signed up to use it. You know, those are teams. Some of them is probably about uh, 20 or more individual scientists kind of uh, working, including a number of very um, prominent members of the community. It's the Nobel on, on the team. Um, and they're doing a wide range of really neat stuff that kind of goes from the pretty far out there, you know, fundamental physics types of ideas and to things that are, you know, more, perhaps a little bit more practical. So we have uh, folks that are doing things related to navigation, you know, inertial navigation, rotation sensors and things like that. Uh, we have a team sort of looking at the fundamental nature of how quantum objects collide and looking for universal properties of those collisions when you have several atoms colliding at once. You know, we understand very well how two atoms or two protons, neutrons, whatever, we understand that fairly well. But when you have three, four, five, it gets complicated fairly quickly and, and it seems it appears to be very interesting. There's certain types of kind of universal phenomena that kind of emerge, so I can do an experiment with the experiment we will be doing, or our PI will be doing, is looking at potassium atoms and how they uh, collide. What they learn is actually applicable to all kinds of other types of particles because it's actually a universal behavior of of any quantum uh, object. I like to say that this gives us some insights into just the nature of how complexity emerges in the universe. Hmm. If you ask a particle physicist, they will tell you that the only thing that ever happens in the universe is fundamental particles collide with other fundamental particles. <laughs> you know, if they're not colliding, they're just going on their way and, and nothing happens to them. Uh, and then they come upon another one and they 
you know, they can be bounced and go in different directions, or this they can turn into other particles. And then, you know, so but that's the he's only a particle thing. Particle physics. They, they, there's no chemistry. There's no biology. Yeah, yeah, it's all just particles. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But as far as we know, we're, these guys are right, and not only we don't know the fundamental laws of you know the actual deep down secrets of fundamental theory of everything kind of thing. We're still yeah, searching yeah. for that. The opinion of most scientists is that ultimately those that physics will be simple. You know, it'll be hmm. um, simple rules, that, that fundamental particles. It'll just be a few fundamental particles, and they'll interact by simple rules. So, you know, how how can you get this complicated universe? How can we get forests and galaxies and symphonies out of that simple physics? And so the idea is possibly that that is emerging when you have more than two atoms collide, when you have three, four, or five. So I think it's, it's very important to study these types of systems. Some of the great mysteries of our time that have also captured the popular imagination. You mentioned theory of everything, grand unified theory. You might get additional clues for that? Or, or, or what about other stuff like well, dark energy yeah, or dark yeah, matter? Sure. You know, Cal itself is, is uh, you know, we, we're hoping that it acts as something of a pathfinder for a new type of experiment that we would be doing in, in space. Very high precision experiments, taking advantage of space to get huge increases in precision and sensitivity over what you can get on Earth. Uh, I mentioned that Cal is upgradable. Yeah. Uh, the first upgrade that we're planning on, on flying for, you know, probably um, 18 months or so down the road would be something called an atom interferometer. People might, may, may or may not be familiar with interferometers. Uh, you might have heard of the LIGO uh, gravity wave detectors. You know, those are, sure. I think, uh, the most precise experiments anyone's ever done. Those let light interfere, you know, with those experiments where you, you send beams the light down different paths, you let them interfere. Um, you can do the same thing with atoms, because atoms, matter has, a, has this wave nature, and so you can use that wavelength dependence to make an atom interferometer. For certain types of th- measurements, these will, can be, especially if they're in space, they can be incredibly precise. You know, so the, the precision, uh, if you're trying to measure an acceleration or trying to measure gravity, uh, goes as a square of the amount of time that the atoms get to, that you get to look at the atoms. So... Hmm. If that can be 100 times bigger in space, we get 10,000 times more sensitivity. And so it is possible that this might take gravity wave research further. There have been proposals, you know, so so we're not doing any direct experiments on gravity waves with with Cal, but uh, scientists have proposed that this might be a possibility. Another experiment that we are looking for, and we hope to do at least a preliminary experiment on Cal once we have the atom interferometry capability, uh, some of our PIs would like to do a test of Einstein's equivalence principle. And so the idea is it's sort of a repeat of the famous uh, Galileo uh, experiment where he drops two cannonballs of, made out of different materials from the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Uh, what we would be doing was dropping two atoms or dropping two uh, samples of atoms uh, one would be rubidium, and the other would be potassium. And we will watch those fall in uh, Earth's gravity. We could then measure them, how far they've gone after a few seconds to extremely high precision, and then hopefully get a nice measurement. Ultimately, maybe get you know, a really ultimate test of, of Einstein's equivalence principle in space. So what would happen if you tried that, when you try that experiment, and the rubidium lands before the potassium? Well, that, then, that's kind of 
stir things up, isn't yes, it? That would stir things up. It's, of course, the big question when you do an experiment like that is, okay, if it comes out that they go at the same time, then, you, you, then you're safe and you can publish that one. <laughs> uh, if they fall at different rates, you need to go back and you need to look really carefully at whether there's something that would confound that measurement. And you try different measurements and you try, you know, it's going to take a little work to get, you know, Einstein's uh, hasn't been proven wrong in, uh, not yet. in a long time. Yeah, not and, yet. Uh, it's, you mentioned navigation. And I told you, I mentioned a couple of days yeah. ago, that we're also going to be talking to a colleague of yours at the Johnson Space Center who's part of a project which is actually taking ancient technology, a sextant, and has put it on the International Space Station so that astronauts on the way to Mars or wherever, if, if everything else fails, they can do it the old-fashioned way, sighting on stars. So I love the contrast with what you're talking about. How would something like Cal possibly someday help us navigate yeah. among the planets and stars? If you can measure gravity with an atom interferometer, you can measure accelerations. You know, Einstein tells us that this is the same thing. Uh, acceleration and gravity are the same thing. So if you can measure that, so it leads to something called inertial navigation. You can just, you know, you have your spacecraft in space and you you know, you know where it is at one point in time and you know how it's accelerating after that and you can figure out exactly where it is at yeah, another point in time. Which works. It's on submarines. It's on airplanes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. works. And we can also measure rotations, which is also important. And in space, ultimately, these will be significantly more uh, sensitive than the current technologies that we have. The section experiment is we're on the same, shared the same rocket yeah, uh, up. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's great to see the ancient form of navigation with what, what I think would say is the ultimate kind of cutting edge type of navigation. Yeah, actions. finding your way. Yeah. Just one more potential practical application for the kinds of things that you may learn if yeah. Cal does what it's supposed to. What about quantum computing? Will it contribute? We don't have any direct experiments uh, on the first you know, set of PIs to do quantum computing, but a lot of the technology is similar, you know, at least for certain classes of experiments that folks are doing in quantum computing. And it's a somewhat unique platform where one of the main issues with quantum computing is uh, something called decoherence, where you, you, make, yeah. um, uh, you need to put information into these quantum states. You, you map it into these, these qubits, and they're, they're very sensitive to any interaction with their surroundings. By putting something in space, you know, we can isolate it very well. You know, we don't need to have forces kind of pushing on those atoms. We can just kind of make them almost arbitrarily weak because we don't have to fight against against gravity. So that might let one minimize those things, might let you, you study those types of processes in a different regime. Hmm. You know, I, I suspect that no one's going to be building, you know, full-fledged quantum computers in space, but who knows? You know, <laughs> maybe it, the advantage will be so big that people will say that's where we need to build them. But uh, a lot of that same um, technology is applicable. And even if we don't get any practical <laughs> applications out of work done by Cal and your team and these other teams, there's something pretty exciting about adding to our knowledge of, of how everything around us works. Yeah, this is something I've been working on for almost 20 years, kind of pushing toward this type of experiment. Uh, you know, we call it the coolest spot in the universe. Uh, <laughs> and we call it, uh, you know, it's NASA's coolest mission um, uh, in a literal sense at, at any rate. I think it's going to be um, 
going to be exciting. But I, I really do hope that it makes, you know, does something, uh, you know, opens up uh, the future for some uh, types of experiments that will really make a profound difference in our understanding of, of the universe. You said that there's one more experiment that you like to, you like to talk about? I like to talk about it, yeah, for a couple of reasons. Uh, it does a really good job of illustrating what you can do in microgravity and, and why you can't do it on, on Earth. Um, and this is a, a researcher, um, Nathan Lumblatt from, from Bates College, who's doing an experiment to make bubble geometry Bose condensate. So these are quantum bubbles. They'll take a spherical, um, a hollow kind of spherical shape. You can't do this on Earth because you can make the same potential on Earth, you know, that would allow atoms to go, but the atoms will just clump on the bottom of it. You know, they won't flow up and make the full bubble. Once he has that, he'll be able to look at how uniformly it fills the sphere and how he can look at the dynamics of how it behaves and things like that. If we let him, he would have years of experience to, <laughs> to do on that. You know, a lot of the interesting things that have come out of Bose condensation has happened when you change the topology and things mm. like that. It's... One of those things I can't necessarily promise anybody it's going to be useful for anything, but who knows? You it's, never it's, know. You never know. What would be in the center of that sphere? Vacuum? It would be vacuum, yeah. It would be vacuum. and, and uh, Fascinating. Yeah. All right. How long before real science starts to uh, come out of Cal? Uh, so we, we're in a commissioning phase uh, where we're kind of checking everything out, and uh, we hope to have that wrapped up in two more months now. So um, in September, October, uh, we hope to be switching over to bringing the scientists on board and doing, doing their experiments. Best of success to you. And, you know, maybe after some of that science starts to come back and people start preparing papers for publishing, I'd love to talk again. Yes, I would love to come back. I'm hoping there'll be a lot to talk about. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you, Great. Rob. Thanks. Stay cool. Okay. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Rob Thompson, the project scientist for the Cold Atom Lab, which has taken its place on the International Space Station and is starting to achieve some of those extremely frigid temperatures that are going to help us understand our universe better. Time for What's Up from Planetary Radio and the Planetary Society. Uh, we've got Bruce Betts, the uh, chief scientist of the Planetary Society on the line. Welcome, and I have a special message for you, well, really for both of us. That's good, I think. <laughs> yeah, you may want to reserve judgment. Uh, this is from Santino Jaime. He entered the contest, but he also included this message. On behalf of all Alaskans, he's in Anchorage, on behalf of all Alaskans for space exploration, we thank you for empowering, educating, and exploring. Nice, right? Yeah, very nice. Yeah, but then he says, also, did Bruce used to be in a hair metal band? If not, he should be. <laughs> Define band. <laughs> now, this is fun because we have a reference to, I don't think they're a hair metal band, really, but a very famous band uh, will come up uh, when we do the uh, contest later today. It's your turn. What's up? Little known fact, I was in a band called Psycho Salad Bar. Are you serious? That's not important right now. I did not know that. I didn't even know that you played an instrument, or do you? Do oh, you no. need to for to be in a hair metal band? <laughs> not in one called Psycho Salad Bar. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll get uh, more on that uh, in a future episode. I doubt it. Okay. So planets. I know I've been excited, but I've added another planet just for your enjoyment. 
So Mercury, now visible in the early evening, shortly after sunset, you'll find Venus looking super bright. Look to its lower right. Soon after sunset, you can pick up Mercury, which means that all five planets you can see with just your eyes are up right now. So we got Mercury and Venus, I mentioned, and then Jupiter up in the south, looking really bright also, not quite as bright as Venus. And then over to Saturn, looking dimmer, but cool. And then Mars coming up a little while after sunset now, but we're approaching Mars' closest approach in 15 years on the 31st, and Mars opposition opposite side of the Earth from the Sun on July 27th. So much going on. We've got uh, the moon, crescent moon, hanging out by Mercury on the 14th of July and Venus on the 15th of July. But wait, don't order yet, and I'll get you more information. But also, July 27th, there is a total lunar eclipse pretty much on the opposite side of the planet from where Matt and I are. But if you're in uh, uh, lots of Europe and Asia, Africa, other places, I'll define that next week, or you can check online. You got a total lunar eclipse. Oh, my gosh, that's a lot of stuff. That is a lot of stuff. And, you know, about a third of our uh, audience is um, elsewhere outside the United States, many of them in Europe and those other areas you mentioned. Uh, By the way, does that appearance of Mercury, is that an exclusive offer available only to listeners to Planetary Radio? Yes, it is. Uh, We're (laughs) subliminally implanting in your brain the ability to see Mercury. No one else will be able to see it if they haven't listened to the show. We are so good to our audience. Uh, all right, go on. It's a, it's a benefit. It's a bonus. Go Planetary Society. Hey, this <laughs> week in space history, also an exciting week. A couple things I will mention. 1965, Mariner 4 became the first Mars flyby. 2015, New Horizons became the first and only Pluto flyby. Mariner 4, the spacecraft that made uh, Ray Bradbury's life much, uh, uh, much more difficult. <laughs> I'm not going to explain it. Thank you. We're all about information on this show. (laughs) Speaking of information. Random Space Fact. Wow. Did you do that on stage? Define stage. (laughs) So anyway, if the solar system were the size of a U.S. quarter, the Milky Way would be the size of North America. Wow. That's great. That's that's very good. You know I love those. I know you do. I know. I'll try to do more. Thank you. All right, we move on to the trivia contest. And I asked you, why is the near-Earth asteroid Hayabusa 2 is visiting named Ryugu? How'd we do? I have been waiting for random.org to pick the person that I, I believe is today's winner. Why? For purely selfish reason, which I'll go into in a moment. But random.org selected Ryan Parmenter from the many entries that we got. He's in Georgetown, Texas. He says, Ryugu, meaning Dragon Palace, was named after a Japanese folktale. In this story, a fisherman travels to Ryugu, a magical underwater palace, and returns with a mysterious box, much like Hayabusa 2 will return with mysterious asteroid samples. Close enough? Exactly. I love it. Ryan, congratulations, and uh, thank you for the good work you are doing. Ryan, I know from previous messages, is a SpaceX guy, and I believe he's working on the launch of STP-2, that second 
Falcon Heavy that will be carrying Light Sail 2. He adds, go Light Sail 2 and go Falcon Heavy. Yeah, I, I concur. Good job. <laughs> Keep it up, Ryan, and there'll be a lot of us in Florida at that big launch. Hopefully standing somewhere near you, be sure to introduce yourself if, uh, if you're down there for the launch. Got some other stuff, by the way. Oh, I should mention that Ryan is going to get a Military Radio t-shirt and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account. Mark Little in Northern Ireland. This is where the band comes up. Dr. Brian May, the lead guitarist of Queen, PhD, astrophysicist. He released the first stereo photograph of Ryugu on uh, June 27, 2018, and uh, we'll put up the link to his bl uh, blog where you can actually see this uh, stereo image. Images taken by Hayabusa 2, Brian May. Awesome. And we've also got uh, Ryugu image stories on our website at planetary.org. Excellent. We'll put up links to those too. Uh, Laura Dodd up there in Eureka, California, way north of us. She says, of course, the fisherman opened the box back home and he had apparently been away a hundred years, but had not aged at all. But when he opened the box, he immediately aged a hundred years. She says, I'm not sure what that says about what we should or should not do with the asteroid samples. Hmm. Quandary. <laughs> Whoever opens the box suddenly ages four and a half billion years. <laughs> oh. oh, maybe it'll just be the length of the trip of the, the spacecraft, a few years. <laughs> yeah. Robert Klain in Chandler, Arizona, he says, Ryu goo to this asteroid to collect samples. Sorry, couldn't resist. <laughs> Finally, from Martin Hojowski in Houston, Texas. I love this story. I'm wondering if I were to send this message, the one he that I'm reading, on a turtle's back, would I then get a box with a Planetary Radio t-shirt in it? Though in this construction, Society HQ would actually be an underwater palace, which it isn't. Is it? Uh, well, let me just step outside my door. Splash! <laughs> <laughs> That that pesky airlock uh, malfunctioning again? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're working on gills for everyone. I can't wait. Uh, I can't wait for the next contest either. Well, you know, it's going to be about Mars because Mars gets much dimmer and brighter every uh, little more than two years because of the orbits of Earth and Mars. But also from one close approach to the next, it varies considerably in closeness and brightness. And that's primarily because Mars's orbit is not particularly circular. It is eccentric. So dig into your uh, analytical geometry and get me the eccentricity of Mars's orbit, basically saying how a numerical quantity for how not circular it is. Eccentricity of Mars's orbit. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You've got, uh, for this eccentric answer, uh, ah. till Wednesday the 18th, that'd be Wednesday, July 18 at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Do I have? No, not yet. We're soon going to have some other sorts of prizes to give away. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with winning a Planetary Radio t-shirt that you can check out at chopshopstore.com in the Planetary Society store or a 200-point itelescope.net account. iTelescope is the uh, worldwide nonprofit network of uh, telescopes. That account will get you a couple hundred dollars. You can donate it to a school or a nonprofit as well. We'll, uh, we'll help you out with that if you're the winner. Excellent. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and think about what would your eccentricity be? Go to go out and look and 
I'm I'm so eccentric, man. Thank you and good night. Clearly, my eccentricity is every week talking with the chief scientist of Bruce uh, of the chief scientist of Bruce Betts. I suppose you are the chief scientist of the Planetary <laughs> Society, Bruce Betts, here on What's Up. <laughs> Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its old and new but never blue members. Mary Liz Bender is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan, at Astro. Astro.